everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and Baden-Württemberg, Germany, with a special focus on the SCG Tour, although we haven't had uh, a lot of focusing on the SCG Tour lately. But we are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. With me, as always, is SCG mainstay and GPDC finalist Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins, how are you? Hooray! Hey! Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I uh, just got back from Nationals and had a really good time. Good, good. I had some camera time, which is always fun. It was, was running a little deep there for a little bit, but wasn't able to wasn't able to pull it out in the end. Yeah, I uh, unfortunately I was traveling this weekend. Actually, went and played in a, a PPTQ, which went hilariously badly. Um, oh no! <laughs> but I, I probably will spare everybody that story. Okay. But as soon as I got back to my room, like I had been checking the standings and seeing that you were X and one for a long time. But as soon as I got back here, I was able to put on Twitch, and less than five seconds after I put on Twitch, one of the commentators goes, all right, and let's go see Collins Mullen in the future match area, and I got to watch your match immediately. Yeah! So, nice. Very convenient. <laughs> Do you know around what that was? I So I was on, like, I was on the main and side camera matches pretty much for the entirety of the end of day two. Right. It was your match against Jerry. It was my match against Jerry. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to tell, like, you know, when we're actually on camera. So, you know, like, I don't know everything that was broadcast or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I can just, like, talk about everything. Um, yeah, give me the story. In context that you don't know anything, but, you know. <laughs> so, as everybody who listened to last weekend knows, I played Esper Tokens in Standard. And I was really, really pumped about that deck. Right. Because I thought that it was, like, for sure the best deck for the tournament. I was very happy about it. I had an awesome mirror tech as well that I'll talk about a little bit later. Cool. And going into the tournament, I felt very, very prepared for standard, and I felt like I had the best deck, and that's always a great feeling. But I felt like a little unprepared for draft. I, I've been drafting a lot of the format and been doing a lot of losing in, <laughs> in my drafts of the format. And, you know, I think I had, like, a pretty good grasp of what was good and what kind of strategies that you should be looking for, but... For the most part, I felt pretty lost there, and I, you know, I just kind of went in the tournament knowing that I was just going to try to do my best and and see what happened there. I had one buy at the tournament, and then I won my first round, and then I lost to Blue White Approach. No, control, which was kind of like the one matchup that I knew was going to be pretty terrible for me. Yep. So I was like, all right, you know, that's fine. We ran against it. That's just a little bit of variance. I got crushed. I, I I made a mistake that I think cost me a game there. Who knows if I would be able to actually close out the match there, but there's a point where I knew that the two two of his cards in hand were negate and approach the second sun. And I had my own negate. He finally got seven mana out. I was really hoping that he was going to tap out for approach, and I would be able to negate it and then kill him on the next turn. Mm. But instead he played a Gideon, for some reason or other, I just like forgot that he had a negate in hand, okay. and I negated his Gideon. Yeah, I've which been there. Which negated back, and then used to take over the game. But the thing was, I could still beat the Gideon, I just couldn't beat the approach that he still had in his hand. Mm. So if I just like let it resolve, and then held my negate for his approach, if he had ever tapped out for it, I was in a much better spot. I see, right? yeah. So I just kind of blanked on some information that I knew that I, that I should have known and played poorly because of that. Got crushed there. So, like, a loss in the early rounds of Standard was a little disheartening because I, I kind of figured that I was going to be struggling a little bit in draft and probably pick up a loss there. Right, so the plan was to ride your Standard deck and just do as well as you could in draft and hope that that would get you there. Right, right. Pretty much exactly. So I go into draft day one. The one thing that I learned about this draft format that I'm, I'm sure I'm going to want to go into more later is that Part of the strategy that I approach the the draft portion with is that it's better to end up in a very narrow and powerful archetype than it is to draft a bunch of good cards. Mm -hmm. I think that that's very very important in this draft format is to have a like a very good plan and kind of like ride that out a little bit. Yeah, and that plan can be one of the obvious archetypes like blue green merfolk or red white dinosaur aggro or something like that mm -hmm. but there are also some like other weird funky plans that you can like draft and like weird other archetypes that you can end up in yeah. that i think are very strong one of those is like the one drop swashbuckling deck there's like a one with the wind mark the vampire deck and some other like weird 
like blue white control deck that plays a bunch of treasure and like splashes some bombs. Yeah, and I've actually got one sort of like that that I think is kind of one of the hidden gems of the format that I will will talk about a little bit later. But but I I agree completely. You want to have a plan. That's super important. Your cards need to be focused on accomplishing a specific thing. Yes, yes. So that that's kind of like the underlying thought process that kind of like led me into the draft is that like when I'm making my pick decisions, if I'm like picking between like a relatively good card that's like kind of like good in a couple of archetypes, but is is always going to be like a seven out of ten, versus like a really narrow card that's either going to be a like a nine out of ten if you end up in that archetype, or a two and you just can't play it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be taking the the more narrow card pretty much every time early on in the draft. Really? Because I want a lot of those cards so that I can kind of feel out where I'm going to end up and like what kind of narrow archetype I'm going to end up drafting. Mm-hmm. So so I think that was just kind of like a pretty big concept that I took into the limited process. Okay. Uh, or the limited portion. So now that's that's a little bit different from what a lot of people have kind of said that they want to do in this format is that they want to take unfriendly fire or fiery cannonade or generically good cards first because playables are kind of hard to get the the correct amount of and you know, you don't want to pick the wrong tribe and then be stuck with a bunch of cards that just can't go into a deck. So that's an interesting, like, flip side of that coin, I guess, is is you're gambling a little bit harder because getting there is so powerful. Yeah, you, you are. it is important to note that you are gambling a little bit there because I've noticed that in a lot of my drafts, I've ended up with, like, exactly 23 playables. And it's definitely something that I have in mind going into pack three is that I'm making sure that I'm counting the number of playables I have for whatever archetype I've ended up in, and just kind of, like, being aware of that going into the last pack. Yeah. You know, sometimes you play, like, Cobbled Wings to, you know, fill out your 24th card or whatever. You know what? I think I've that, won a the, bunch of games because of Cobbled Wings that no other card in the format would have won. I actually actively oh, yeah. like Cobbled definitely, Wings in Definitely this not shitting on Cobbled Wings at all. Um, I think that card's great. Yeah. But some, some of the archetypes don't want it as much. Yeah. But yeah, so so that was kind of like the idea that I had, and I started, so I, I went into the first draft, which is after the first standard portion, and I'm kind of like looking at a couple things, and I noticed that red is pretty open, a swashbuckling wheels, so I'm kind of like aware of the black-red swashbuckling deck that could potentially be open, mm-hmm. so I'm taking some like black one-drops and red one-drops. And I take the swashbuckling, and going into the second pack, I'm I've, I've taken a few things to hedge here and there. I think I had like a one with the wind or something, to like to be open to some other archetypes. But that was like after reading pack one, that was kind of like the the archetype that I identified as probably being open. Mm-hmm. Pack two, I open a charging monster store. And I'm like, okay, you know, this is just an excellent card, and it even fits in that archetype, so I'm just gonna take yep. it. And then I get past another charging monster store from the left. And I take it. Nice. And I'm like, all right, we're doing it. Yeah. And I ended up actually just drafting a... I, I ended up not playing any of the swashbucklings or any of the one drops. And because I just got past a bunch of really solid black and red removal spells and creatures. So my, my deck was just like a bunch of the four mana explore black red guys. And I had a chupacabra. And I had two monster sores. And I had four removal spells and a good curve yeah so you're kind of a value black red deck which is not the easiest thing to end up right yeah a value black red deck that was really good at turning the corner because i had three of the red four drop haste explore guy Mm -hmm. and two monster swords so like there are definitely some games where i trade the first couple of creatures that we play and then I'm like, all right, hasty 3-3 three, three hit you, hasty 5-5 five, five hit you for 8. <laughs> now that all of a sudden I'm winning this race yeah. that you thought that you might be a little ahead in. So I just kind of like stumbled into like not really an archetype, but just like powerful cards, which is the opposite of what I thought that I would <laughs> do. The, the power level of my deck was just so much there that it just kind of ended up working out. And my, my two monster swords led me to 3-0 that pod pretty convincingly. Yeah, I mean, that's a sentence that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, I just kind of like stumbled into that one. It felt like I, I think I drafted well, and I definitely identified what was coming, and like ended up in probably the best deck that I could have ended up with. I d- definitely got lucky to to have so many powerful cards in those colors opened, mm-hmm. but I definitely felt good about how I ended up drafting that one. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you effectively cut your colors, and so you got rewarded in pack two, and you know that's. 
Right. That's what you hope for. Yeah, definitely. Felt pretty good going into day two, and I was like, all right, if, if I can 3-0 my next draft somehow, then I feel very, very comfortable in my position to be able to top eight this tournament. You know, I'm feeling excellent about my standard choice, mm-hmm. and there's only two more rounds of standard left. Feeling pretty good about those. Let's see what happens. So I go into the next day and ended up drafting. My pack one pick one was interesting because I took like a decent merfolk card over a probably like a better. I, I think I took it over like an. It's not the Ixalan's binding. It's the other pacifism effect. Uh, pious interdiction. Pious interdiction. So I, I ended up taking like a like a pretty good merfolk card uh, over a pious interdiction because I like. Pious Interdiction is, like, a decent card that fits into a lot of archetypes, but it's not, like, you know, super something that you want. Right. It takes a whole turn. It's it's not the most efficient removal spell in the world. Right. Hedged a little bit in the next couple of picks. Like, I took another Merfolk card, and then I took, like, an aggressive red 2-drop because I had seen a couple of cards that could be in black, red, or white, red mm-hmm. uh, aggressive strategies. And then I got like a fifth pick blue-green merfolk uncommon. It just kind of like took that as a sign and went in on it and ended up drafting a pretty good merfolk deck. There were a couple of things that I noticed didn't wheel. So I, I figured that there was one other merfolk player at the table, but I think that that was fine. And I, I didn't think that he was on my right. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going into merfolk, getting pretty rewarded, having a pretty solid merfolk deck that I was happy with and managed to pull out another 3-0 draft. I felt like my deck was maybe like a B plus or an A minus in terms of power level, but definitely like after I drafted the deck, I was like, all right, I can work with this. This is definitely something that I can work with. Yeah, I I think that might actually have been the match that was on as soon as I turned on Twitch and and your your name was immediately called out. I think you were playing against like a vampire Z deck, like they had just snapped over to you and then your opponent like kind of made an attack that decimated his own board and then you you won from there. (laughs) Yeah, I was kind of blown away, actually, because my, yeah, my opponent was playing black-white vampires with a deacon, and he had, I think he had, like, three or four of the make three one one vampires gold card. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so he was going really wide. He had, like, I think he had, like, eight one one vampires on the board and a deacon, but I was just, like, playing creatures that were just bigger than his, Mm -hmm. and he made it pretty clear to me that he just didn't have any combat tricks. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Uh, he would make some attacks, and I was like, all right, you know, I'm willing to trade my creature for his combat trick to, like, eat up his turn or whatever, because he was, like, stuck on four mana and looked like he was on one spell a turn for a while. And he would just, like, sit there, and he would sigh, and he would, like, attack with everybody, and I'd be like, all right, I'm going to make the obvious blocks, just because, you know, if you're casting a combat trick here, you probably can't do anything else with your turn, and then I can progress more on my board. And he would just, like, let me eat his creatures to get in some damage and then play another thing. I think because of that, it was pretty clear that he didn't have, like, a trick or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So then, like, you know, he kind of gave up on the on the jump attacks and started just, like, progressing his board. And I was pressing in my board, and I had some evasive creatures that were just kind of, like, chunking in damage. He had gained a bunch of life with all of his lifelinkers, but I, I think I was, like, really far ahead on board. Because additionally, I got down a Vanquisher's Banner. Mm-hmm. So all of my Merfolk were, like, bigger and kind of, like, hard for him to fight through. And then he walked the planked a creature of mine and then played the red-white Planeswalker. So that's Huatli, warrior poet. Huatli, yeah, yeah. So he played Huatli. So he killed a creature of mine, played Huatli, made three of my other creatures not be able to block, and then attacked with all of his creatures. It was very confusing because I wasn't dead and... I was pretty sure that he was gonna die on the crackback. So, like, I did the math like three times, and I used my last remaining creature to block his biggest thing. Took the damage down to like five or something. Then it became obvious that he had forgotten about the anthem effect that I had on the table. Oh. Because he, I blocked his three three with my three three merfolk that was actually a four four merfolk. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, so that dies as well. And I was like, no, it's actually bigger because of this Anthem effect over here. And he just kind of looked at me and he was like, oh, yeah. And then I had exactly enough points of damage to kill him on the crackback. You're lucky that that wasn't just the sickest bluff in Magic history, but... Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, like, he was tapped out, so, you know, oh, like, okay. all the information was on the board for me to figure out. I see. But I think his play was very, very good had I had the power on board that he thought that I had, <laughs> because... He put me down to five, and he had, like, 
had way more creatures than I did. Mm -hmm. So he would have been able to just, like, swing again next turn. So he didn't think that he was dead on the crack back. But, in fact, he had just forgot about something. Okay. That that's uh, that makes a lot more sense than kind of what I saw, you know, from above the board. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it looked very strange on camera because he just, like, made this alpha attack, and then I blocked, and then I made an alpha attack back, and he just picked up all his permanence. <laughs> which is not something that you normally see in pretty deep in a, in a big tournament. Right. But, you know, it happens. Yeah, mistakes happen. yeah long tournament, um, like... You miss a thing every once in a while, and it sucks to miss something that important, but yeah, it definitely happens. Yeah, he was he was pretty devastated after that, for sure. And that was game one, and I was able to get game two as well, pretty convincingly. So that put me at 6-0 in draft, which I was very excited about, <laughs> it's and nice. definitely didn't expect. Um, yeah, you can't, even when you know a format pretty well, I, I don't think you can ever count on that. Yeah, I definitely wasn't counting on it, and definitely didn't feel like... I, I felt like I was underprepared in in the format, but I guess I guess I knew the things that I needed to know and just like didn't feel confident because I definitely felt like I drafted really well in hindsight and like was able to pick my spots, find what archetype was open, and go into it. That you know that felt good, and then it I felt really good about so I was one of the only four X ones going the last two rounds. Mm -hmm. So if I was able to win either of those two rounds, I probably end up making top eight. Yeah. Although my breakers were pretty bad because I had lost round three of the tournament or something. Next round, I'm playing against Jerry Thompson for a win and in, essentially. And he's on teamer, and I'm playing my Esper tokens deck that I believe just beats up on teamer. So I'm very excited to see him as my opponent. But, uh, man, the, the house of cards definitely came down yeah. a little bit because he crushed me yeah. in that match. It was and hard it to just, watch. It was never really close. I just never really got my foot on the ground, and I don't know exactly what happened. Uh, <laughs> I felt like it was one of those experiences where you just like play against somebody way better than you, and then just completely get dominated, and or just kind of like sitting days in the chair. Well, so I don't think that that was game one. I think game one he just had the only possible draw that can win a game one against you, and you had a like surprisingly bad draw. Right, my game one draw was pretty. Pretty bad. Not bad, really, but it just, like, never really got... Was able to kind of take over the game. Yeah. And the other big kicker was that I never saw Fumigate in game one. Right. And that's kind of the card that always puts the nail in the coffin against Teamer game one. Because mm -hmm. they don't have any counter spells. They just kind of have to progress on the board and then hope that they get there. There's one moment where I definitely recognized that I got severely outplayed because... And this is, this is like, one of those mind trick things. I had a vampire token as my only creature, and I know it's going to jump block. He he first main phase plays a Rogue Refiner, and then he attacks me with a Whirl of Virtuoso and two Thopter tokens. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm going to be jump blocking with this with this vampire token, and I was kind of planning on doing it this turn, but he played the, the creature with the bigger power. I don't know, for some reason, and I've made this mistake so many times before that I feel like I shouldn't have made it again this time. But I decided to not block this turn and block next turn mm -hmm. to to save more life with my chump blocker. Yeah. He kind of got me too because he like attacked. He like played his creature out and he attacked me, and then he kind of like picked up his pen to write down life totals. Like I obviously wasn't gonna block. I kind of figured that yeah, you, he's probably right. I shouldn't block. <laughs> but the thing was that he really didn't want me to block because he was planning on next turn casting a glory bringer and exerting on my token mm -hmm. so i would never be able to block yeah. and that just put me at such a low life total because i missed out on being able to save that three life by blocking with my guy that i was able, able to get my foothold in the game again so i definitely feel like had i just kind of taken some more time i want to be able to use this jump blocker while i have the opportunity to i should just do it now and that one extra point of damage is probably going to be worth I think definitely a mistake on my part to wait a turn to jump block there. Like, almost feels like you're not making a decision at that point, because you have a guy in play, and you almost, when it's a 1-1 token, you assume you're going to get to jump block with it at some point. But, not so. Especially yes, exactly, in a world of right. glory bringers. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I kind of feel like I got, got a little bit there, you know, kind of made that mistake, and got punished pretty hard for it. Yeah, uh, and then game two, Jerry demonstrated that he had a pretty solid game plan in this matchup yeah. that i feel like you know he was a good enough player to have like a good game plan for this bad matchup and be able to enact that whereas like most of the team or opponents that i played against on like magic online testing and over the course of the weekend were 
just kind of floundering a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly the word that's in that's in my head. <laughs> like I was thinking the word floundering. Like when when you're yes. playing the deck yeah. that's supposed to beat you and you haven't come up with a plan for the matchup that makes a lot of sense, then that's you know you just struggle bugging your way through it. And and that's yeah. that's not where you want to be for this tournament. And that's not where Jerry and Jarvis. That's not where Jerry Thompson no. was. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he he had a plan. And he played a turn three bestiary. And I was like, uh, all right, Jerry knows something and I don't. Yep. So, all right, I'm going to try to play this grindy game. And we played that grindy game and he beat me in it. You know, I'm supposed to be able to grind out pretty much anybody, but he had a card that was not on my radar, which was Spell Pierce. Right. I hadn't seen any teamer players playing Spell Pierce over Negates. And there was a turn where he tapped out for a Glorybringer and had one blue mana up and i was like all right this is my opportunity and i cast my fumigate and he spell pierced it yep <laughs> <laughs> and i was like that's probably just gonna be the match because can't really can't really do anything there yeah and his list actually ended up with he had three spell pierces and no negates in his sideboard so i think that was to tilt it more towards having that plan for the tokens deck because I think negate is stronger against the control decks because those games tend to go very long and teamer actually wants to grind with them a little bit but against the tokens decks yeah. like having that flexibility is is really important and the token deck has fewer lands in play over the course of the game right right super props to Jerry for having like a good game plan in this tokens matchup you know executing it so well against me my draws were a little clunky but I you know definitely feel like Jerry played yeah. very well and had a good enough plan to be able to kind of take me apart pretty efficiently yeah and and it looks like teamer is just that may be mostly the takeaway from from this is that if you're prepared to adapt the teamer deck to the expected metagame and if you're right and if your preparations were the correct ones then teamer has the capability of pretty much just being the best deck no matter what else is going on yeah, definitely. And that that just kind of like showed in that tournament where a lot of players had success with pretty stock teamer lists with like updated sideboards, mm -hmm. I guess would be a, a good way of breaking that down a little bit. And my next round opponent as well, Jarvis Yu, had, we're just like playing teamer with very updated, solid plans against the new decks in the format. And I think that's just kind of like shows how teamer is so adaptable and stuff. It's kind of like the jund of the format where you just kind of get to tune it to whatever format your your metagame that you're expecting to face against. Yep. Actually getting hit by the Rivers Rebuke Rivers Rebuke out of the teamer decks is really brutal because it's a one of yeah, like so it's that's definitely the right. the one of sideboard card, but when it happens, ugh. yeah, that, that's what happened against my my last round opponent Jarvis. He he rivers rebuked me, and I thought it was actually gonna be fine for me because he like tapped out for it, got in for some damage, passed the turn, and then I was able to just kind of like fumigate his one sided board away. But then he was able to untap play a Chandra, and I was stuck on five lands for pretty much that entire mat uh, game. Yeah. Like, my only options were to play a couple of things or play a Regal Caracol or play a Scarab God. I was worried because uh, I lost game one to him confiscation cooing my Scarab God mm. and me just not being able to do anything about that. So I didn't, I didn't want to tap out for a Scarab God and pass the turn because I knew that if he had a confiscation coup... It was, that was probably just going to be it, and I, I didn't really have anything to fall back into that unless I top-decked another Fumigate. Mm -hmm. And I, I also couldn't rely on my enchantments that had been in play. I think I had, like, two hidden stockpiles in play at that point that were kind of, like, you know, keeping me in there. But the Rivers Rebuke made me pick them up, and then I never had the opportunity to cast them again because I needed to put things on the board where to stop him from being able to get in with the stuff that he had. Yeah, definitely, definitely pretty crushing Rivers Rebuke, even though I was able to fumigate probably best possible follow-up play to his Rebuke. Yep, yep. And once the board is clear, since he was just able to deploy more threats, plus the tokens deck's threats are a little slower deploying. Like, you rely on keeping Hidden Stockpile in play for a while, and, and when it gets returned to your hand, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, just not something that you really expect to see. Yeah. And, you know, the, the better players are going to have the better tech in the room. I also had some teammates, like Ralph was there playing Teamer, and he had two Rivers Rebukes in his sideboard because he also knew that the Teamer match, or the, the tokens matchup was something that he was going to have to deal yep. with. 
so I, I I guess that I should have expected to see some of that at the top tables near the end of the tournament. Yeah, hard to adapt your deck to that, and certainly you can't. You have no way of just playing around it. So that's a tough tough puzzle to solve for the tokens deck. Right. Yeah, uh, playing around it, I feel like is almost impossible. Like I think that you just need to make sure that you're never really at a point where you're dead in one swing. Yeah. So making sure that your life total stays high enough where if they do ever rebuke you, you're not just kind of dead in the water. Mm-hmm. So, like, you, you can't lean too hard on your chump blockers as much. You have to make sure that, you know, okay, if all of my board goes away, am I just dead to the creatures that he has in play? And that kind of has to dictate your, like, chump blocking decisions, where you, you maybe you need to chump block a little more aggressively than you otherwise would to be able to re- use the resources that you have to play. Right. Um, which is annoying because you want to be able to, like, deploy... You want to be able to build up your big board presence, and that's kind of how you take over the game, but... So, I guess, takeaways from Standard is that uh, I felt like I had a pretty well-positioned deck for the tournament, but the, the better players in the room were ready for it. And I think that just kind of, like, showed in the last couple of matches that I ended up playing. I guess that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, they certainly were prepared. They also... I mean... They ran kind of good, and you ran kind of bad. Like, you know, that's not not part of it. But they absolutely had the plan well, yeah. that they could run well into drawing. You know, like, Teamer without a good sideboard plan is still going to, even if they draw reasonably well, is still going to lose. So that was definitely a, an important factor to them winning those matches. Right, for sure. you got to give it, give yourself the opportunity to at least, you know, be able to draw well and and, and make those plays. Yeah, and that, that Lifecrafter's Bestiary plan was... Very, it was really impressive how well that worked. Like if some person at a, you know, like a PPTQ or something played that, had boarded that in against me as tokens, I'd think, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen here. But if Jerry T plays that on turn three against me, then I'm like, that's probably going to kill me this game, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's just like going to be able to find your, the the pieces that you know that you need to interact with me, right? Yeah. So you're, in his case, like the spell pierces and the... Supreme Wills and stuff like that. Right, um, right. Like, the only cards that matter in that matchup, then, are, like, he just wants to draw a Whirler Virtuoso, as many Glory Bringers, and as many Counterspells as possible. Yeah, like, if, you, you know, if you're if you looking to draw some specific pieces, then uh, a good draw engine is probably a good place to be, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and it was pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. So, congrats to him. He ended up going on to make finals and qualify for... The United States team, so pretty happy about that. He was definitely one of the players that I was rooting for in the room. Yeah, there's a super adorable picture of him giving Reed a big hug because they get to be on the national team together. So, I mean, worse, yes. worse things yeah, have happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely excited for him and, and happy about happy about that. Also, congratulations to Oliver Tomiko, who is our current national champion. Yeah, yeah, blue-black control. He's awesome. Uh, Oliver has been... He's a young guy. I think he won an open at 14 and he's is he 17 now or something like that? Yeah, I, I, I think something like that. Yeah, he's he's definitely been been crushing it lately. So, you know, good for him. Yeah. I certainly was not playing anywhere near his level when I was 14 to 17 years old, so <laughs> right, 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 for sure. Yeah, definitely definitely kudos to him. Yeah. He's uh he's shown a shown a good good promise for being definitely one of the best players if he continues to play at this rate, yeah. you know, through his 20s and stuff. For sure, yeah, one of the futures of US Magic. Right, you know, Huey today is it's just such an excellent intuitive player because he started playing Magic so long ago at, at that age. I think that that definitely go, like goes to show that it that'll definitely help you in your in your magic intuition is playing when you're younger. Yeah, specifically playing these high level competitive tournaments, like that's great training. You know, I played when I was that age, but I I wasn't playing at a high level and and thinking about these problems the way that you know Oliver has to think about these problems when he's playing top eight of nationals and whatever. So that that training specifically, I think, will serve him super well. Yeah, playing at a high level and just like having access to re- the resource of other excellent players being able to help you out. So I think that you know being able to play now on a team with Jerry and Reed is going to do a lot of really good things for his game. Yeah, I'm starting to get real real jealous of this kid, but he, I mean, he earned it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he definitely earned it for sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, my, my Nationals weekend, a little disappointing at the end, but uh, definitely happy to have made a deep run. Definitely happy to have 6-0 draft. I think that was a pretty, pretty cool thing to have done. Fell a little short in standard. Oh well. Yeah, well, a little disappointing. Not what you expected, but 
since you did so well in draft, I think we should probably talk about Excel Unlimited. Yeah, definitely down for that. I uh, I feel like I probably have a pretty good understanding of it now. I, I guess I, I my confidence has been has been boosted from the past week. Yeah, but. Yeah, I think that the the kind of biggest thing about the limited format that I had to take away from it was just kind of like that being able to make selections of cards that were fit into a narrow archetype more aggressively, mm-hmm. which is kind of like feels counterintuitive, but has been working out for me. So I, I guess that's, that's just what I'm going to recommend okay. um, is that you the, the upside of ending up in a narrow archetype is so high in this format that you really want to do everything that you can to be able to maximize that potential. Sure. Have you had any experiences like that? And I know that you've also played a lot of a lot of this limited format so far. I mean, I, I I've got to say I'm kind of going more with the hive mind approved technique of taking sort of the more generally functional card. Like I, I first picked a decent number of pious interdictions. Uh, I'm actively happy to take Vanquish the Week. You know, as far as if I've got to take a common, like Vanquish the Week is one of my favorite commons to first pick because it is so generally applicable, but also like no matter what black deck you're in, it's still one of the best cards in your deck. But I mean, I like I'm, you know, like I'm down to first pick Shapers of Nature because I think that card is great. I don't know. Maybe I've found kind of a a balance between the two things. Like I, I will take the powerful tribal creatures first pick and not feel too upset about it especially the uncommon stuff yeah i i think i can see what you're saying i don't know that i've embraced it quite to the level that you have i think that it might just be something that i'm applying to my overall limited philosophy which i'm still kind of working on developing a little bit sure you know i i started playing magic playing limited so i like the the majority of the limited that i feel like i've played has been back when i was bad at magic so i'm i'm currently trying to like reinvent the wheel a little bit and like relearn magic from kind of like starting maybe like six months ago or something where I was like okay you know I have a lot of like conceptions and heuristics involving how to draft and all this stuff that are probably wrong because you know I learned how to do that kind of like an FNM level where people are not as good and you don't have that kind of like the theory that you really want to be able to lean on. Okay, that's um, interesting. So I've been, yeah, so I, I hope this makes sense um, because I, I have a feeling it might not relate <laughs> to a lot of people. Because I like I learned how to play Magic and like played a lot of limited Magic back when I was bad at Magic, I've, I've been like consciously trying to like reinvent the wheel a little bit and kind of like relearn how to draft, how to read signals, how to look for archetypes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, one of the things that made me realize that I needed to do that was something that we've talked about on the podcast before, which was Christian Calcano drafting Slitherblades at a Pro Tour. Yeah. And just how that kind of, like, blew my mind open to the possibilities that existed in Limited, where, you know, I I had always believed that you just need to be taking, like, the best card every time, but there are actually, there's more to it. You can draft decks that are just better than your opponent's decks and that's like part of being good at limited is to be able to develop a plan that's just so good uh i think that one of the like one of the realizations that i came to was that in sealed you play all the best cards and in draft you have to have a plan Mm -hmm. right your your deck needs to be trying to do something for sure i think in order to be able to have an edge because like in constructed you you can build your decks like you always your deck is always going to have a plan right so that's kind of like built into the whole deal and i think that part of my strength as a magic player right now is to be able to identify plans and constructed and lean on my knowledge of the metagame to put myself in a good position there you know i think that i have a lot to learn in terms of actual in in magic gameplay but i think that my at least in standard like my deck building and my deck selection process is very very solid and i think one of the one of my better strengths so i kind of wanted to see if i could find something along those lines in the limited context of like what are the best limited players in the world know that i don't in terms of like building decks and like having solid plans to lean on what does the draft process look like with that in mind yeah so now that i have that concept really i i'm i'm looking at these drafts at a in like a kind of like a new angle where i'm not just i don't want to pick the best card every time because I want my deck to just like have a bunch of B pluses. I want my deck to have synergy. I want my deck to work well together 
And I think that Wizards of the Coast is doing a really good job of designing sets where that's possible, right? Yeah. Yeah, cards have different values, have different grades in different decks, especially, I mean, in this format more than most, but I think in a lot of formats that we've seen recently, uh, I, that's been... Yeah, definitely. I think this is definitely a, a recent kind of phenomenon in, in the limited space where, you know, maybe five years ago or something, you, you definitely do need to be drafting in a way that's just picking the best card every time because as, as long as you have all like a bunch of B pluses, the synergy doesn't really exist to the extent that it does now. Yeah. Where you get so rewarded for being able to draft these like new synergistic strategies. So right. So I think that I've I've been like this one limited format has been kind of like the first one that I've taken the deep dive into with that mindset. Like I didn't really play a bunch of limited in the last couple of formats, even though I heard that they were phenomenal limited formats. Um, I just like never had any big tournaments to prepare for because of nationals in particular, and because of there's at least going to be a little bit of Ixalan in the pro tour that I'm going to. I really wanted to understand this limited format on a better level, so sure. I was able to kind of like dive into looking at these formats from that perspective, and I think it's paying off a little bit, and I think that I'm I'm starting to understand you know, what to look for and how to draft from the perspective of developing developing a game plan while you're drafting, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it sounds like you're kind of trying to bring your lessons from Constructed and that mindset into drafting a little bit, like from, from pick one, pack one. It's not even just like, all right, what archetype are we building? What's our strategy here? It's really like, what role is this card playing in the deck that I am building right now? And that's, you know, being very specific with what you're choosing to do. Right, right. Yeah, so, like, if we want to talk about Exelon in particular, my probably my favorite archetype to draft is the black-red swashbuckling deck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a bunch of black and red one-drops that you can play that work really well with, with swashbuckling on turn two that just kind of, like, really puts the pressure on gives you gives you like a bigger creature that they can that they don't know how to deal with in the first like three turns of the game yeah that is able to just kind of like put you in such a uh, leading position in the games like even just the one two insect with death touch yeah. sometimes turn one that turn two swashbuckle it get in for three then you've got a three four that's hitting them every turn starting on turn two like if you're on the play your opponent's on such huge back foot as long as the rest of your deck is like aggressively slanted which in theory it will be you should be able to utilize that a lot and this is one of those like philosophy of fire kind of decks where if you get all of the cards out of your hand and they're contributing towards dealing damage and your opponent like dies before they can play all of their spells then it doesn't matter that you spent cards putting enchantments on creatures or you know combat tricks right right so yeah and then, you know, even if your opponent gets to turn four and then is able to Ixalan's binding your your creature that has been hitting them for three every turn since turn two, Yeah, you know, I think that you're still going to be pretty far ahead, right? Right, because the value of creatures, like when, you, when it comes down to it, every creature, all it does in a game is either deal damage, I mean, and I'm not talking about utility creatures like looters or whatever, but most creatures, their, val- their contribution to a game is dealing damage to your opponent and preventing damage to you so if you're your blighted bat or, or uh, blight keeper or whatever with a swashbuckling on it hit them four times and then gets removed then it's contributed a lot more than your 2-2 that you played on turn two that never got to attack right as long as long as your deck has the capability to close right right from there exactly yeah value is definitely an important concept in a, in a lot of magic and a lot of limited magic but i think that you know you you definitely get to give some of that up in order to gain that tempo advantage of putting your opponent on the back foot and then continuing to like progress on the board while they're trying to answer the threats that you've already got in play yeah so i think that that's that's definitely one of the my favorite draft decks you know i've always enjoyed playing aggressive strategies and this is just such a powerful one yeah that people don't really see coming as much i mean any secrets to this one any like underrated card i mean obviously a lot of the cards that make up the deck are underrated in general but is there anything that's that i wouldn't get by just trying to draft one drops and swashbuckling well, right. So um, I think that like some of the more powerful cards are definitely you're. I think that you're looking for the the menace one one in red. You're looking for the flying one one in black. Mm-hmm. You're looking for combat tricks like 
sure strike skullduggery because your creatures are going to be generally smaller than your opponent's creatures so you're going to need to be able to attack your smaller creatures into their larger creatures yeah. and and have that not end terribly for you yeah just like a really low curve of you you probably want like four ish four or five one drops a bunch of two drops some three drops i really like the 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 three three for three that has menace if you have another uh, pirate is very very strong yeah, in this archetype excellent just because the, the the menace text is so relevant in this kind of strategy where you end up just like throwing your creatures at your opponent and you know the least the least amount of blocking that they can do the better mm-hmm. and then anything with reach really the deal four to a creature or player for five in red i think is strong here if you can get like one or two of those because yeah you just want to be able to close out the game right so if you can make that last attack to be able to put them down to four and then be able to close the game up there right and I mean, the only fives you're interested in are really like that and maybe Pyromas- Pyromancer and Charging Monster Sore. Like cards that immediately are going to deal damage to your opponent or something. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like Charging Monster Sore is definitely insane, kind of always. And especially in this archetype, because if you're ahead on board and you're the beatdown and then you cast Charging Monster Sore, the game just ends. Yes. Yes. Um, that's very true. So yeah, you're definitely, you know, you're not always going to see any Marsasaurus because everybody's going to take them, but you're, you're, you're very excited to see one there <laughs> for sure. But yeah, and I think the other important thing is to pay attention to your curve, and you don't really want a lot of three drops. You don't want your curve to be maxed out at three. You want your curve to be maxed out at like one and two. Yeah. Another thing that's very important to know is that you need to be playing less lands. You need to be playing 15 or 16 lands in the archetype, mm-hmm. which is a concept that I think a lot of people are catching up on but if you look kind of past what was the first format where that really became common knowledge well i think in uh, i think it was like aether revolt in in kaladesh and aether revolt like sometimes people would run fewer i mean definitely in triple almanket because the aggressive decks were so widespread there was a lot of shaving on lands and then in hour of devastation because of like the additional mana sources you could put in your deck there were a lot of weird tricky things you could do there right yeah i don't know if it was just me or if this is just kind of like a phenomenon that happened across magic in general but um uh for a long time, I believed that in Limited, you just played 17 lands, and that was kind of like the end-all be-all of what Limited decks look like. Sure. Well, and when you're not able to make those decisions correctly, you know, when you don't have the knowledge, when you are starting right. out Magic and you've only been playing for six months or a year or whatever, you should just put 17 lands in your deck. Yeah, that's definitely fair. So, right, So and that was where I was at in Limited for, I guess, a while, but definitely recently in the past, like, three or four sets that have come out, I've really started to pay attention to the number of lands that I have in my deck and how that's going to impact things. Yeah. Because I feel like I always kind of like hedged towards aggressive strategies before while I was still playing 17 lands mm-hmm. and would just flood out sometimes. And, and I was always frustrated because like, you know, I've drafted this really, really powerful uh, aggressive deck, but it just like never really kind of gets there yeah. because I don't have enough gas. And I think that that was kind of a result of me playing too many lands too often so uh, yeah as soon as i was able uh, to like look at it objectively and be like all right you know how many lands do i want to throw in this deck do i want to cut this five drop and play this other like mediocre two drop and maybe another three drop or something and play 16 lands or something like that like i I started doing that recently and i think that it's done a lot for my magic game i think that's just a concept that people are kind of picking up on is that you know sometimes you want to play 16 or even 15 lands in your in your draft deck. yeah yeah i mean i i started doing that like trying to be very conscious about land count relatively recently uh i agree it's really important and especially in these ultra low curve aggro decks that are running card disadvantageous cards like swashbuckling like you really can't afford to flood out and and you need to do everything in your power to reduce the odds of that happening because you're you're just not going to win any game where you draw four spells and five lands right right yeah yeah so many games of limited i see are just kind of like decided by one person drawing more spells than the other person yeah so you know if you if you're taking this is definitely a a theory that kind of like even goes back to legacy a little bit where you look at a delver deck and you're like all right how is this deck keeping up with this like miracles deck on cards it's just because of the fact that they're drawing more spells over the course of the game yeah so if you if you can put yourself in a position where your curve is low enough to be able to afford to do that then i think that you're you're gonna have 
more cards. And especially in Ixalan, I think that what another one of the good strategies that I want to talk about is uh, the vampire strategy. Because the vampire strategy, fundamentally, the reason why it's so good is that it, it you get to play all these cards that are like, that give you multiple bodies. And all of the bodies have potential to trade for other bodies in this format because of like like equipment and stuff like that right and the the deacon in particular the the toughness level in ixalan in particular i feel like is very low so if you're using tricks or equipment or anything like that to be like your creatures are going to be able to trade for other creatures yeah most the vast of the majority of creatures have like. have three or less toughness so giving a token plus two power like means that they've got to trade a card for it or, or you're going to keep essence draining them right so yeah and the um the the pirates colorless in this format is so insane and people have kind of picked up on that pretty quickly where pretty much that the pirates colorless goes in pretty much every limited deck that i've that i and every limited archetype that i've, I've been playing in this format and I, I think that it excels the most actually in the vampires deck where a friend of mine zach kine we were kind of just like talking during the tournament and he had drafted just this black white tokens deck with a bunch of vampires and a bunch of equipments and was we were like jamming test games in between rounds and stuff and he would just crush me every single time because he was playing the make three vampires and then a couple of the four mana three two that makes another vampire and he also had the legionnaires that found other legionnaires so he was able to just like put so many bodies on the board at at such a high value rate yeah. that I wasn't able to keep up with. And then he would just draw one of his three power... Right, like a deacon, a, a, a cutlass, and something else. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And then he was just able to ledger that for all of the creatures that he played were trading for my creatures, and he just ended up with more creatures on the board because all of his creatures made other creatures. Right, and the big problem for the other creature decks is the lifelink, because normally you could not take time to cast a bunch of 3-mana 2-2s that draw you more 3-mana 2-2s, but the deck plays from behind so well because of the life gain, and it's just very yeah. difficult to kill while it's doing its thing. Right, exactly. So yeah, so like, you know, whenever, whenever all of your creatures have like 3 or less toughness in play, and your opponent plays a deacon gives one of his vampires plus the power and just swings Ugh. with it then you know it's either going to be a six damage swing or it's going to trade with one of your creatures and gain him life and it's just it's such a powerful strategy in this format i think in our first impressions when we talked about this for the first time you know what we said was yeah vampire seems pretty good but we're not totally sure how it like gets there and uses its tokens. Cutlass has seemed good, and we I think we kind of because it was like not even week one we missed Anointed Deacon, but that card is very it's the whole like glue that brings the deck together and gives it a purpose and is the payoff. Yeah, right. You you need some sort of effect that has something to do with that, and that can either be a Cutlass or like my uh, my friend was playing the the two mana equipment that gave your opponent two O twos yeah. or something like that. Just like any way of increasing the power of your, your tokens is just so, so good. As long as it's a repeatable effect, right? Right, right, right. Very powerful, to especially to be able to do it for no mana with the deacon. If that deacon stays alive right. and is just an enchantment that keeps turning your... Allowing your tokens to trade for full cards that your opponent spent mana on, then yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. Yeah, and I think that's such a good example of a plan, a strategy that you have to know exists and have in mind when you sit down at the draft table. Be like, all right, you know, there's vampires that I'm going to be looking for to see if whether or not it's open. And I know that in my vampire deck, I want A, a lot of things that make multiple creatures, and B, a lot of things that increase the power of their creature, right. of, of those creatures, and allows me to utilize those, right? Right. Because if you get to the end of it, and you don't have any deacons, and you don't have any cutlasses, you don't... You almost Your don't deck have is a garbage. deck. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So, and that's why I would pick a kind of a more narrow card like a deacon over a objectively more powerful card that goes in the same archetype like the like the 4-4 four four that you can pay two life to give it flying. Sure. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, that card is arguably much better than a deacon, but the deacon is so important in your vampires deck that I, you know i'm gonna i'm probably gonna pick the deacon over that card most of the time right right unless you've already got like three of that effect then then you need the deacon much more. right you know of course yeah of course you got to use some discretion there but right um, but but it's definitely just a more important card to the deck and in most cases you're just going to take it over the pretty decent uncommon right right and that's kind of like the the whole theory that i was talking about earlier 
is that you you want to be picking those narrow cards more aggressively because you need like you, you need to identify what is going to make your archetype work and then you know take cards that that benefit that yeah yeah i hear that it's just difficult for me you know like like pick one pack one i'm certainly taking vanquish the weak over anointed deacon because maybe a bad example because vanquish the weak i've found to be like exceptionally powerful in this format but i still if i haven't had any signals or anything yet it's tough for me to to dive in i mean maybe we just have slightly different thresholds for the power of a payoff card that that i'm gonna say okay yeah even though this is narrow i do want it over the pretty powerful but not as a high ceiling card and I think that there's also like some different philosophies that kind of go with drafting that I've like I've heard other pro players talk about. They're they're very op- opposing thought processes, but you know who knows who's correct. Mm-hmm. Like so, I've heard Reed Duke. I've like watched a Reed Duke draft like on Channel Fireball, right? And just like hearing the way that he's talking about it, he's like, I I really want to be able to take these picks to like maximize the chances of me being able to play my first first couple of picks yeah. right my early draft picks like my pick one my pick two those are generally going to be the more powerful cards that you have and he values those so highly that he's going to you know draft in such a way to maximize the potential of him being able to play those cards right but i've also seen other players draft in such a way where they're willing to throw away the first five picks as long as they are able to identify what is open and kind of like ride that right yeah so they're they're willing to pick all these like different like crazy cards in like four different colors in the first couple of the first couple of picks because they want to identify what's open and then stick with that and then hopefully maybe one of those four or five early picks ends up like being you know a card that you can play Mm -hmm. in the archetype that you end up with but you're not you're definitely not expecting any or all of those to end up in your deck you know if you know if it ends up being open and you get to play one then great but it's just like those two kind of like opposing viewpoints that i i see exist and i think is very interesting yeah yeah and and these are high level players you know this isn't reed duke and some random guy this is like reed duke and and somebody else platinum pro uh, like i'm not thinking of any specific yeah, this is examples like, this is like reed duke or and like ben stark having like those sure. opposing viewpoints right like both players who are tremendous limited players and both of whom i respect very much it's it's so interesting to see those two players have such opposing viewpoints on you know how to approach a draft yeah yeah, definitely. You know, there, there's no way to say that one or the other is right or wrong. And I think probably it's just not even true that one or the other is right or wrong. Because I, I think the idea we have of there is a correct pick in any spot, I think that may be misleading and probably damaging to our ability to develop as drafters. Right, yeah, like super rigid pick orders and stuff like that. I think that is something that a lot of like newer players hear about and adhere to so much that because they just like don't have the knowledge base to pull from to like know when to stray or something like that yeah and i I think that's definitely a big part of it and also just like the idea that okay i took this powerful black rare in this pack and then i get past an okay black common and then a stronger like green uncommon that would not go in the same deck as this black rare the the idea that there's a right and wrong decision there i think that may just not be true and i think trying to figure out whether or not taking one or the other is a mistake you know you want to take the ones that give you the best chances but i don't know that there's a like always correct decision there right yeah, like maybe one of these philosophies is better long term, one or two percent more than the other one. Mm-hmm. But as long as you have a at least some sort of like underlying philosophy of of your draft, you're probably going to be able to. That's better than just like trying to pick the best card every time, right? And, and you might make up for that percentage by like psych- taking the pick that's better for you psychologically because you feel more comfortable looking at uh, cards taken and having two black cards, or you look you feel more comfortable looking at a cards taken and you've got two excellent cards so whatever happens like one of those is gonna make your deck and just feeling good after that is more important than you know making the one percent more likely to result in a playable deck decision i guess right 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 for sure something that's very exciting for me as a magic player is being able to dive into 
conversations like this because like these things like are things that i enjoy finding out in in magic or it's like you know the the underlying philosophies of of why you would make certain decisions over another decision yeah so i feel like i'm kind of like opening up into that in limited and that just makes me feel good as a as a magic player because you know i feel like i'm getting better to a certain extent right for sure i mean the more i learn the more i feel like there's room to grow and and room to get better so that there's like unlimited space for improvement at drafting because there's so many decisions right right yeah it's it's so not solved that you there's like room for innovation and and new ideas and stuff so yeah it's very very exciting I kind of want to bring us back down to earth a little bit. Like I, I love these discussions, but I do want to talk about uh, kind of my my pet Ixalan Unlimited deck that I've, I've kind of fallen in love with drafting. Yeah, definitely. So for sure. So black green is like color combination without a without a home. It's very nonsensical to draft because there's no tribe or anything, and there's no clear synergies. Like the only thing kind of uniting it is maybe. Hey, I, maybe if I have a bunch of explore guys, I can take this looking chupacabra, and I guess I can stitch together a deck. But several times I've had a draft that like probably would have been a train wreck if I hadn't been open to trying something really weird. This is a difficult deck to draft. Usually, what happens is you get a couple of powerful cards in different colors. Like, kind of the classic start for me is to open an Entrancing Melody and then get past, like, a Shapers of Nature. Like, for some reason, these two specific cards sort of are the the, the start that has <laughs> cool. happened to me a couple of times. And then Merfolk is not there at all. And and really, like, Blue isn't really there either. The Shapers of Nature was, was just a red herring because somebody didn't want to first pick a gold card, which is totally reasonable. I, but this start can happen with, like, any combination of, like, a couple of powerful cards that may or may not actually go together. This is basically the New Horizons deck, and... It's been surprisingly good for me when I've had these like really rocky, weird starts. Basically, the keys to the deck are you need a couple of New Horizons. This isn't really a problem because they usually go like ninth or 10th pick. But, you know, once you get to the middle of pack two, if you don't have New Horizons, then you need to pay attention to drafting them. Um, you also probably want a Blossom Dryad or two, because if you don't draw a New Horizons, then Blossom Dryad can sort of fill its place, at least in ramping you a mana, so you can start casting five drops. Obviously, the combination, if you draw a New Horizons and a Blossom Dryad, is really incredible. Um, one of my favorite... So much mana. It's so much! And one of my favorite things to do is turn three Blossom Dryad, untap... Play a New Horizons, you have a place to put the plus one plus one counter if you missed a two drop, and then you can untap the land that you put the New Horizons on and cast a Grazing Whiptail. So you still cast a four drop on turn four, but you're so ahead on mana too. The problem is that in this format, there aren't a ton of mana sinks to really take advantage of that mana, so you're really relying on... Uh, Shapers of Nature is the big uncommon that you want to end up getting and splashing and, and uh, sinking that mana into. But there are some rares that, you know, like Entrancing Melody, uh, Waker of the Wilds has been, uh, like, that's a, a huge card for this deck and, and even more powerful in this deck than in other decks I've seen. But, the, I mean, it's it's kind of a tremendous bomb. And the reason for the black in the deck is that the rampy decks haven't been a big part of the format because they tend to fall behind so easily to the aggressive decks. And you make up for that usually by having some black life game cards. So whether that's Mark of the Vampire and Queen's Agent are the common ones. And Queen's Agent is actively good in this deck, which is pretty nice because it's a six drop that people don't try to pick up a ton of so that they're usually available. And at Uncommon, the, the five mana deal three, gain three is, is excellent. Like this is definitely the best deck for it. And, and getting that little bit of life buffer allows your more powerful cards to come online. You need to get those powerful cards, but because you are a New Horizons deck, you're able to take... It's similar philosophy to the Blue-White Treasure deck, is you're able to take whatever does show up, uh, including relatively expensive stuff. I've had uh, Conqueror's Galleon be really, really impressive in this deck. I, I've, you know, flipped it, used Blossoming Dryad to untap a land so I had with New Horizons on it, so I had enough mana to return a removal spell to my hand and cast it that turn. Uh, I've, nice. I've used Blossom Dryad to untap the the land, uh, Conqueror's Foothold, 
so I can activate it twice in one turn. So, like, loot and draw a card or something. And the deck just does things that make you feel good and smart, which may be one of the... Maybe <laughs> one of the reasons that I've drafted it more than I should it can be very powerful. And more importantly, it's a way to kind of salvage these drafts that aren't going very well. Yeah, You you do need a couple of two drops in there. So especially so you can put a plus one plus one counter on them with the New Horizons. Excelli's Diviner is obviously the most important one. But even like Dire Fleet Hoarder is fine because if it blocks and you get a treasure, you're happy. The Castaways, the 2-3 the that can't attack unless you control an artifact, play New Horizons and make it a 3-4 and all of a sudden you can block pretty much anything. And so there's there's a lot of pretty powerful cards that go into this deck that people may not be placing the hugest priority on and that's that's where you can pick up some value. Yeah, the and the whole concept of like being able to do something with with the seats that would otherwise be train wrecks I, it is just such an important thing to be thinking about in in, in particularly this format. And and I you know, I, I love hearing about all the decks that people have kind of come up with kind of along those lines like the one that you just described i think is a great example of that kind of like similarly like the blue white treasure control splash all the rares deck is like a similar concept of you're you're able to utilize the the draft patterns of everybody else at the table to you know like queen's agent was a card that you mentioned and i've definitely had some draft decks where that card has just been mvp because you know i got like two or three of them and i am playing like this really slow dirtily deck Mm -hmm. And that that card has been so good at being able to like stabilize and gain me the life that I needed to get back in the game. Yeah, uh, yeah, awesome. So I mean, I think similarly to the blue white deck, like these are decks you kind of end up in. You shouldn't be th- these aren't the marquee decks. You shouldn't be seeking to to build the deck, but right. you can yeah. end up there for sure. Right, but just like you know, you know, you need to be aware that it, it's an archetype that exists and and is something that you can fall back on if you you know if the normal stuff isn't really getting there. Yeah, yeah, and it's fun to like have that in your toolbox and know that that's one thing you can have access to. And, and the more decks you're comfortable drafting in any format, the more powerful of a magician you are. Yeah, definitely. I think the best limited players are the ones who are aware of kind of like all of the places that you can end up and do everything in their power to end up in one of those places yeah yeah definitely definitely a good thing to be to be thinking about yeah uh anything else about excel unlimited in particular that um you know i mean i think that we could talk about more of like the archetypes but i think that you know most of them are, are pretty well known by now right. and we'd just be like listing them off i think that I've, I've explained my philosophy for it pretty well so yeah yeah and uh, that was my goal <laughs> <laughs> right and i i, I may Try to buy into that philosophy a little bit more and see how that works out for me. You know, take the the tribal uncommon over the vanquish the week or whatever it it might be. I guess I use that example too much, but I guess over the over the <laughs> cutlass. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the concept. Yeah, well, I mean, cutlass is great. Yeah, just always first pick cutlass, right? In most texts. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Try it out. See how it feels for you. I think that like finding something that feels good for you is probably the most important thing. And and this is what's been feeling good for me personally. Yeah. So this is what I'm gonna be sticking with. I think. I think that is a real thing. Picking the strategy that you know makes sense to you and you feel comfortable with, as long as it's within a couple of percentage points of you know drafting the the best like objective deck that you, that you possibly can is probably your best strategy you know if your thing is always draft green white that's not a good thing to have but if your thing is you know i want to be a little i want to take the higher variance more powerful cards a little more highly and that's what is working for you and feels comfortable to you, then I don't think that anybody can possibly tell you that it's wrong. Right. It's just so interesting to me how it's like different people can draft the same seat in such different ways and probably still come out with a deck that has the ability to, to win a draft. Yeah. It's uh, draft is so dynamic and, and I'm still so far away from like fully understanding how it always works and stuff um, that, you know, I'm excited to explore more of that space. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that drafting is just so much more fun for me than anything else it's it's just right yeah um yeah but i think that's all i've got for for limited for now cool this coming weekend i'm going to cincinnati i'll be playing some modern probably gonna end up playing that titan deck in paper for the first time so we'll see how that goes (laughs) i'm excited well yeah and intentionally understanding that you're not playing it at full capacity i assume yeah oh yeah for sure okay um 
the the other deck that's kind of like become a little more on my radar is actually lantern control i think is one of the decks that is similar to uh amulet titan mm-hmm. where it's like a hidden gem of the modern format where you don't see it everywhere just because it's not a deck that a lot of people either a feel comfortable playing or b want to play yes. it's probably <laughs> very very powerful yeah and it's nice being one of the very few decks in modern that has a positive affinity matchup so you know <laughs> right yeah for sure for sure so i'm, I'm going to be keeping my eye on that deck and I, I might run it through some leagues as well and see what happens but um, I'm probably just going to be be trying out the, the Amulet Titan deck. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. If you play Lantern, I will still watch your matches when you get featured, but <laughs> begrudgingly. Yeah, I apologize to, to all the people who, who, who want to watch me play Magic, because it's not really going to be terribly entertaining, but uh, if I am playing Titan, that'll be entertaining. That, that'll be sure. a show. Yeah, I'll, I'll be excited for that. But yeah, I'm, you know, definitely got some testing to do this week pretty early on. Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll keep an eye out, and hopefully we see you on camera soon. Yep, yep. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, if you want to reach out and contact us, uh, podcast Twitter is at MTG underscore Grindcast, and you can also reach Collins on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Um, have a great week. We will see you next time. All right. See you, everybody.